I'm not sure how Pastor John manages all this teaching every week. It's uh, it's uh, a little bit tiring to keep talking and talking and talking, but it's fun. We are so thankful for how all of you have welcomed us and come and greeted us and talked with our kids. Um, we feel really welcome, so thank you very much for that. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be in 2 Timothy, chapter 2, eventually. Um, <clears throat> I do want to give you some context and kind of uh, introductory thoughts on uh, what Paul is getting at as he brings us this message, brings Timothy particularly this message in 2 Timothy 2. Let me start by asking uh, if you all are familiar with a missionary by the name of Adoniram Judson. Is that a familiar name for some of you? You read his biography or heard of him? There are kids' cartoons, even uh, Lamplighters, I think, does a, a, uh, an episode on the Judsons. Well, he was uh, the first missionary. He and his wife, Anne, were the first missionaries sent out of the United States of America. There were others sent uh, from the West, from Europe, before them, but they were the first sent out uh, from America. And uh, this is a man, as I have served in Southeast Asia for the last several years, that I have come to admire more and more. Um, the Judsons were dedicated, faithful servants who are worth considering uh, as we live our lives uh, and try to see what is it that they did that uh, led them to, to be so used of the Lord. It's worth looking at their life a little bit. Well, they, uh, they went in 1812 initially to India. That's where they were intending to go and serve. And uh, uh, as they got there, they found that it was hard to settle there. There were political issues going on that kept them from being able to stay in India. And so they, were, uh, they found themselves on their way to Burma, next door to India, in 1813. And, and Adoniram Judson. And after arriving in Burma, Judson famously spent uh, three years, 12 hours every day, to learn the Burmese language. He was determined to be able to speak it clearly, effectively, in a way that people could understand him before he went out and started his ministry. And his hard work really did pay off. He was an expert in the language. He, his skills in the Burmese language are revered even today. Um, it's amazing, actually. He was quite gifted with language. And during his time in Burma, he translated the entire Old and New Testament of the Bible into the Burmese language. And his translation is so good that it's continued to be the primary translation even today. I will say it's a little harder for people to understand, and so I I uh, actually recommend people to use a newer version, but the churches just love his version, and they, uh, they actually continue to use it for the most part in almost all the churches. Well... Judson didn't just translate this in order to be uh, for like an academic exercise or uh, to, to brag about his language skills. He was doing this for the purpose of uh, using it as a tool for ministry. And he was a faithful witness for the gospel, um, even from those early years. And yet it took a while for people to respond to his ministry. It was uh, six years before the first person chose to follow Christ. The first Burmese person chose to follow Christ under his ministry. This is a young man by the name of Mal Nol. And uh, so Mal Nol was the first, and then after six years or so, things picked up a little bit. And uh, in, in the next six years, about 17 new people came to Christ. So in, in a period of 12 years, 18 people had come to Christ. Um, now, that wasn't the end of Judson's ministry. He continued to work throughout his life. But I wanted to just focus in on one of those early converts. He was actually the fourth man who came to Christ under Judson's ministry because this young man became a faithful partner throughout his life to Judson while Judson lived and worked there in Burma. One of 
his daughters, one of this, this man's name was Mount Ng, and one of Mount Ng's daughters uh, also came to Christ. Not all, just because he came to Christ didn't necessarily mean that the whole family did. But one of his daughters did. Her name was May Paul. May Paul had a son named Thadu Aung, and Thadu Aung did not trust Christ. In fact, he, in his early years, um, vehemently rejected the faith. He was determined to be a faithful Buddhist. He called himself a king's man, and he wanted to show not only his mother, but the community that he was uh, dedicated to the Buddhist faith and the country. You know, for many uh, Burmese people, uh, being part of being Burmese is to be Buddhist, and he wanted to show he's faithful to that. So one day, he actually went to attack his mother physically uh, to kind of shake her up um, but also to send the message that he is not like her. But in the process of getting ready to physically attack his mother, he looked at her in the eyes, and suddenly something changed. He recognized the depth of her faith like he hadn't understood before. And he understood that she wasn't going to back down or relent of her faith just because he was going to physically harm her. And God used that to reach his heart, such that Thadu Om finally decided to trust Christ and, and be a, a Christian along with his mother. He also, Darun Aung, became a faithful man to pass on the faith to his children and grandchildren. And so for generations, his legacy was moving on. And today, there is a man uh, who is a great-grandchild of Thadun Aung, who still lives in Burma. Uh, his name is Tim Maltun. He's a very old man. He's in his 90s. But he is a faithful witness for Christ. He's known as a great evangelist. He's one of few who's actually been able to reach even to the Burmese monks, the Buddhist monks, and help them see the truth of the gospel. Uh, it's very hard to reach these, these folks, but this man has a reputation for doing that. I'll tell you this, this story just to highlight the fact that uh, Judson's work uh, created a legacy of passing on the faith from generation to generation that God has kept alive even today. God has linked together one generation after the other. He has kept the, the passing of the faith going throughout these last 200 years because of Judson's work. And Judson's, Judson's life, his story, it inspires me. You want to go and to, to give my life to pass on the faith to others as well, just like he did. But this wasn't easy. You can probably imagine there was a cost involved in the work that Judson and his family did. It wasn't a glorious, adventurous life in the jungle, all right? And that's not what Judson expected. As he was preparing to go off, he he really wanted to be married before he left, like like many of us. Uh, Going to the field alone is a scary prospect. So he wanted to be married, and so he met Anne, uh, who would become Anne Judson, uh, and before marrying her, he had to ask her father. And this is a little portion of the letter that he asked her father, just to give you a sense for what he was expecting as he went off to the field. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. What? And they really didn't know if they would come back. Whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and the sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation and insult and persecution and perhaps even a violent death. He goes on, Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you for the sake of uh, perishing immortal souls? 
This is a pretty heavy, pretty intense letter, but Judson wasn't exaggerating, and he wasn't trying to make himself look like a courageous hero. He was just facing the reality of what he was about to endeavor on and endeavor to do. Uh, from 1812 to 1850, 24 of his relatives or close associates died while he was there serving in Burma. Two of those were his wives. He, he was married a total of three times. His first two wives passed away before him. Several of the people who died were his own children. So his life was not an easy life. There was a cost, a heavy cost, for him to be able to go and to, to continually pass the faith on to those in Burma who would never hear otherwise. It wasn't just the deaths. It wasn't just that kind of sickness and misery, but he was also in prison for a long, a long period, several months, like 20 months or more. He, uh, there was the British-Burman War in the 1820s while he was there, where the British were going in to take over. And uh, the Burmese uh, imprisoned every British man who was there living in, in Burma. Now, of course, Judson wasn't British. He was American, but he was white, and he spoke English, and so therefore they decided that he was British, and they put him in jail with everyone else. But <clears throat> even after knowing what he was going to face and facing some of this, this is Judson's comment on what it takes to succeed as a faithful servant of Christ. He said, There is no success without sacrifice. If you succeed without sacrifice, it's because someone has suffered before you. If you sacrifice without success, it's because someone will succeed after you. That's a pretty insightful way of looking at this whole suffering through the process of serving the Lord and and passing on the faith. It's a good example for us. So Judson dedicated his life to this cause, to making the gospel available to people who would never otherwise and there's always a cost for servants of Christ to pass the faith on to, to the next generation of believers. There's always a cost. It's not going to be the same as Judson's. Our, our experience is going to be very different. I'm not going to say whether it's easier or harder, but our experience is going to be different, and yet there's going to be a cost to passing on the faith. And this cost of passing on the faith is what was on the mind of the Apostle Paul as he was sitting there in a Roman jail cell in the year 67 AD, about. And uh, he was sitting there in this cold cell, and he was thinking about this concept as he's writing to his disciple, Timothy. And before we get into the text for today, I want to get some context of this text. So let's go actually to the end of the letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 6, where Paul gives some really helpful comments that give us a sense for what's going on in his life. In verse 6, he says... For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So Paul uh, knows he's about to die. Uh, In his first imprisonment, uh, he was pretty hopeful about uh, being released. But this is the second time he's been put in prison, and uh, the situation is very different. People aren't being released, um, and he's pretty sure he'll be executed. Verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so he knows he's been faithful. What a great thing for him to be able to say, I have been faithful throughout my life. In verse 8, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. And so he's confident about his future. He's confident in the promises of God, and he knows that a bright future awaits him in eternity. 
Then as he gets to verse 9, he makes some practical comments, suggestions, requests. He says, do your best to come to me soon. He's wanting Timothy to leave Ephesus and come to him where he is in prison in Rome. He says, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So Demas has deserted him. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Now, he doesn't say Crescens has deserted him. I think he sent Crescens there. Titus to Dalmatia. Titus is a faithful servant. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is a, he is very useful to me for ministry. Just think about this. He's sitting in a Roman jail cell, and instead of like moping about what's happening to him and um, just being depressed about his life, he's thinking about how can I still do ministry even from this Roman jail cell. What an example. So he's going on. He's he's still managing people, moving people around. Verse twelve, he says, "Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus." Then he tells Timothy, when you do come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. So it must be cold. He says, also bring the books and above all the parchments. He's not done with his ministry. In verse 14, he gives, he begins a warning for Timothy. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And then he makes some comments about his experience with the Roman consul so far. He says, um, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But you know, this is probably when he was preaching the gospel to them there in the court. Um, anyway, he says, may it not be charged against them, those who deserted him. Uh, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Um, so Paul has ministry on the mind, even as he's writing this letter to Timothy um, in this dire circumstance, suffering Let's, uh, before we get into chapter 2, I also want to look at the end of chapter 1. Uh, in verse 13, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, this is what leads up to our text for today. He says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and, and the love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So this is the main charge that Paul has issued uh, in chapter 1, that guard this good deposit that has been entrusted to you. But what is this good deposit? Um, For that, we have to go back to verse 10, where he identifies that good deposit. He says, about halfway through verse 10, he says, Our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And so Paul says, uh, he defines the gospel there as as, um, Jesus Christ abolishing death and bringing life and immortality to light. And he, he says he was appointed as a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the gospel. Okay, now then when he refers back to the gospel in verse 12, he says, For I know, I've, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So what has been entrusted to him is the gospel. All right, And so he continues to refer back to this comment in verse 10, uh, calling it what has been entrusted to me, or uh, what Timothy knows is, is in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, uh, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. So he has various ways of referring back to the gospel, but it's this is the core that he's talking about. This thing that they're entrusted with, that they're to pass on to others, is the gospel. Okay, so we just had to get that out of verse 
10 of chapter 1. But now, what we really want to focus on today is his message in chapter 2. All right? So, I'm suggesting that this command that we've just read is really the charge that Paul's coming out of as we get to to chapter 2. This charge to guard this good deposit entrusted to him is, is really a charge to keep the faith and pass on this faith. That's what Paul's charging Timothy with. And in the process, in chapter 2, as he explains to him how to do this, uh, he talks about four different responsibilities that come along with, uh, as a cost, kind of. They form the cost of passing on the faith. Right? These four responsibilities make up the cost of passing on the faith. So the first responsibility comes in verse 1 of chapter 2. You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Okay? So this first responsibility is to find your strength in the grace of Christ. The, the term translated be strengthened here in my ESV, uh, NASB says be strong. It's just a term that refers to a person's ability to function. All right, and so he's just telling Timothy to find his very ability to function, his his power, his strength in the grace of Christ, not in himself. Timothy was facing enormous challenges as he attempted to guide the church in Ephesus. The culture there wasn't so different from our culture here in America in a lot of ways. Ephesus was the crossroads of civilization. Um, it had people from many different backgrounds. It was an economic powerhouse. People were wealthy here for the most part. Um, they had goods flowing in uh, by sea, um, by road, and um, the city's economic and political security really made it, much like America, a perfect breeding ground for idolatry. They also had, a, had rampant sexual immorality, and so this is the environment that Timothy is leading a church in. This is the environment that he's working in. And just think for a moment, can you imagine trying to tell people in that environment that they need to repent of their sin and follow Christ? And I think probably a lot like in the American environment where we're so content and secure in our economic strength and whatnot that it's hard for Americans to see their need for Christ. And I think that's something like what Timothy was facing. They also had a lot of different philosophies flowing in, and that's that's what was referenced there toward the end of this letter when Paul is talking to him about Alexander was that there are people who oppose this message. And that's what Timothy is facing in the city of Ephesus in this, at this point in the 60s of the first century. So you can probably guess Timothy may have felt a little overwhelmed. Um, as you read the letter, you, you get the sense that Paul's really trying to encourage him to kind of be encouraged, stand up, be strong, keep moving forward, don't get depressed, don't get overwhelmed. It's easy to get overwhelmed when we're depending on our own strength to serve God. But Paul doesn't encourage Timothy to depend on his own ability. Instead, he instructs Timothy to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul's already introduced this same kind of principle back in chapter 1. In verses 6 and 7, um, there's a very similar challenge, okay? So if you look back in chapter 1, he says, For this reason, verse 6, I remind you to fan, the, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. All right? Um, this gift of God is very similar to what Paul's calling the grace of Christ in chapter 2. The words in English don't look so similar. concept is similar, but in Greek... Uh, the word gift is charisma, 
whereas in um, the, the word grace is charis. And so it's, it's a very similar command. It's just fleshed out a little bit more in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. Um, the point is, Paul's saying, God gives the necessary gifts for his servants to accomplish the duties that he asks for us to accomplish. And uh, one scholar that I read, I like the way he said it, he said, grace is the shorthand that Paul uses here to summarize God's limitless, undeserved means of coming to his aid, that's Timothy's aid, uh, bearing Timothy through difficulties and making his labors fruitful. There's this great power available to us if we will only depend on it instead of depending on ourselves. We absolutely cannot do the work of passing on the faith if we try to do it in our own power. We cannot change people's hearts. It's not going to work. Not in our own power. Um, God has really set up the Christian life in a way that doesn't make sense to us sometimes. We want to go and work hard for him and, and do our best and show how capable we are of making a difference in people's lives. But God has set it up so that he wants us uh, to be weak and let him be strong through us. Remember how Paul says it in, in 2 Corinthians 12. You can just listen as I, as I just read a portion of verses 9 and 10. Paul's talking about his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. You know, he's got this issue that's hindering him in some way. He calls it his thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it is, but he's asking God, take this away, and then I can be even more effective. But <clears throat> the Lord said to him, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response to that, he says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that's the same kind of point that Paul's pulling out here in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. The cost, when we're saying the cost, what's the cost of, uh, how's this a cost to depend on God's grace? Well, you know, our temptation is always to depend on ourselves. And, and we want to get the credit. And we want to feel important in this whole process. But what we've got to do is limit that. We've got to suppress our own pride and our desire to be seen and our desire to be um, commended for our great talents. And we've got to just let God shine through us and let him get the credit. That's essentially what it means when, when Paul is calling Timothy to depend on the grace of Christ. Don't depend on yourself or your own skill. Let the Lord work through you. So in passing on the face, we have this responsibility to lean on Christ and not on ourselves. Then the second responsibility um, is to equip others with the truth about Christ. When we're passing it on, we've got to equip people to do that um, on an ongoing basis. So verse 2 says, uh, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men. The command in this verse is to entrust, right? Just entrust what? Well, uh, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. To entrust is, is an action that just involves um, a person turning something of value over to another person. And what Paul's trying to get Timothy to entrust is the, the gospel truth that he's been entrusted with, all right? So Paul had discipled Timothy as a young man, and that's why um, Timothy's very familiar. He's intimately familiar with Paul's teaching, and that's why he can say, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy has heard Paul teach so many times that he's very, very familiar with Paul's message. He knows what Paul teaches is the truth. He knows this is the gospel message that God intends for everyone to hear. And so that's why he calls it what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. 
Paul viewed the gospel as a treasure that needed safekeeping. Not like a treasure that you're going to put in a vault and hide away. Like a treasure, maybe you could think of it as on an armored car where you're protecting it from corruption and things, but it's on its way to its next destination to be shared, not to be hidden away and kept away. All right, so guard it, but proclaim it. Keep it pure. Keep it the, the, the real gospel message, but proclaim it and let others hear it and teach others uh, the, the depths of the gospel. This is not just sharing the gospel in this, in this context in verse 2, but this is teaching people the depths of the gospel that they can understand it thoroughly and pass it on to others. So Paul recognized that uh, he himself had been entrusted with the, this treasure of gospel truth. We already read portion of that back in chapter 1, verse 12. He talked about God being able to guard the treasure for him by the ministry of his spirit until that day. Um, he's saying uh, God's going to guard this treasure. He, so he is already talking in terms of God being the one who's doing it. He's, he's depending on the Lord to help him in this process. But Paul knows he's been entrusted with this message. And then he challenges Timothy to guard it, right, in chapter 1. But now in chapter 2, he's telling Timothy, hey, this treasure that you have, uh, don't be the last link in the chain. He's saying, continue sharing this with others. Don't be, don't just be content to let yourself be entrusted with this treasure of truth, but pass it on to others who can faithfully teach it, right? And he does, he gives these two qualifications for the kind of people to entrust, alright? So we're not just talking about sharing the gospel in general, but specifically training others to be sharers of the gospel in this, in this particular verse. All right, so he says the people that you're going to entrust should be faithful, right? A comment on their character. Uh, they should be trustworthy people, people that are believers, right? But then he says they should be able to teach others, all right? There needs to be a skill in these particular gr- this particular group of people who will actually be able to teach this to others. So this is, uh, this is something that happens as a result of discipleship, all right? Um, people being able to faithfully proclaim the truth and, and adequately proclaim the truth. So says we have to train others like this. We know that elders in the, in the church are the chief teachers. They are guarding the flock, uh, guarding the word, guarding the message, not allowing false teaching to get in. They're feeding the flock. And certainly this text uh, can include choosing elders and training elders, but it really extends further than that. All right, Let's just acknowledge that the whole church is involved in passing on the faith. Um, when he says, uh, entrust to faithful men. This word for men is just the word anthropos. It is masculine, and so translating it men is a legitimate way, but it's really the generic word for people. And so whereas he was really talking more specifically in the first letter about training elders and choosing elders, here you could take this very generically. And if you think about the context, uh, that's what makes more sense here. Trustworthy individuals arise from a faithful church body, not just from a good pastor, Okay. So let's just think for a minute about Timothy's own background. And for that, we should look back in in chapter 1, verse 5. There, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, to Timothy he's writing, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So Timothy, he's not just become a faithful young man out of thin air. He's come from a background where he had a mother and a grandmother who faithfully taught him. And you probably remember from Acts 16 that his, his father was a Greek. His father was not a, a Christian as far as we know. He wasn't a Jew for sure. Um, but his mother and grandmother had taught him the scriptures from a young age. And then even in chapter 3 of this letter, chapter 3 verse 14 and 15, um, 
Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Um, so, again, Timothy, his, his ability to teach, his faithfulness, it came out of a period of many years where he had been trained to that point. And then Paul was able to use him in ministry and he was able to be, he was worthy to be entrusted with this treasure of gospel truth. But that wasn't just the work of the pastor or the apostle. It was the work of even his parents and maybe like Sunday school teachers, right? Or children's church teachers or others who are just around the church encouraging kids and talking to kids. That's where faithful people come out of. is a whole church body that is taking on this responsibility seriously uh, to bring up those who will be faithful and able to teach. Every maturing believer has the responsibility to trust, uh, to entrust others with the truth. And so just think for a moment about who passed the truth on to you. Do you remember? I bet you do. If you're a believer, who passed the truth? Who shared the gospel with you the first time? Think about that. And then have you been a faithful carrier of that truth? Have you been the kind of person who then takes that and uh, and delivers that message to others? And, and then how have you done that? And is it effective? It's what Paul's calling Timothy to do here, and it's what every mature believer has the responsibility to do. And we have to be in, intentional about it. We can't just think it's just going to happen at some point, but we've got to be intentional about it. This is a cost because, you know, it's really easy to just sit in the pew and, and soak in teaching. It's really easy to sit and listen to the radio, to, to good preachers on the radio, or to sit in Sunday school, to the good Sunday school teachers teaching us whatever, and, and just soak in all this teaching. It's a lot different when then you take responsibility to go and share that with others. There's a cost involved there. But healthy churches make a, a, um, disciple-making disciples, right? Healthy churches effectively make disciple-making disciples. And healthy mission efforts also effectively make disciple-making disciples. That's why we're part of the group that we're part of. You know, there are a lot of different mission organizations, but the group that we chose to go through is a group that believes in training leaders and trusting them with the truth so that they can go and take it to others within their country. So uh, when we think about the health of a, a church or a mission agency or whatever, we can't just be content to gauge it by the number of baptisms and salvations that happened in, in a given year. Really, a healthy environment is going to have this plan in place and this culture of making disciple-making disciples. So this is the second responsibility, and it's, it's the responsibility to pass on the faith by equipping others, all right? And the third responsibility comes in verses 3 through 7, and this uh, third responsibility Paul calls Timothy to is to share in the suffering of Christ. Um, or we could say share in the suffering for Christ. All right, both would be fine. This this line of the letter speaks to Paul's real experience in following Christ. Uh, most of us would not use this uh, as a recruitment tech, technique or tactic by you know going and telling uh, our those under our employment or trying to recruit new ones by telling them how much they're going to suffer. Uh, but Paul is just being matter-of-fact. This is the reality, and it's been the reality for most servants of, of Christ throughout history. Um, Paul himself wasn't charging Timothy to do something that he wasn't willing to do, right? He experienced suffering. Uh, he expected suffering. Let, let me just read a portion of 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul ex- talks about some of the suffering he experienced. Um, he talks about how many imprisonments he had been in, multiple imprisonments. 
he talked about countless beatings, uh, often near death, right? In verse 24 of chapter 11, he says, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So 39 lashes, the maximum allowed penalty. Then 25, verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. And he goes on and on talking about various things that he had endured and and suffered as a result of serving Christ and trying to pass the faith on to the next generation of believers. But he expected it, right? And he was telling Timothy, all believers should expect suffering, even especially persecution. In in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, he says... Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So he's telling him we should expect to be persecuted. Jesus taught the same thing, right? In in, uh, John 15, 19, he said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And that sounds quite a bit different from, from the health and wealth messages that we hear often coming out of America. Paul nor Jesus, either one, taught that the result of being faithful and and, and, and obedient to Christ is that we're going to have health and wealth. Here, what we see is they're teaching that it's going to come with sacrifice and suffering. Paul's uh, examples that he gives in verses 4 through 6, they highlight the struggle. It's not necessarily a result of persecution, but just the struggle that results from a true sacrificial commitment to your cause. So he just gives some very simple examples like a soldier. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Soldiers train to learn the value of following orders and serving a commander. Soldiers are on duty at all times. They don't get the luxury of just having a nine-to-five job. They voluntarily give up many of their freedoms in order that other people can have freedom. And in doing that, they please their commander because that's their job. And likewise, faithful servants of Christ need to keep this kind of single-minded focus on their commander, on the Lord. Uh, following Christ often means that we are going to sacrifice worldly pleasures. And I'm not just saying sinful things, but other pleasures that maybe uh, keep us from actually being focused on Christ and, and the mission that he's called us to. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Imagine the joy that you'll experience when you stand before your Lord and he says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. We can't let our focus drift um, into pleasing men. We need to keep our eyes focused on Christ like the soldier. The athlete, uh, in verse 5, he says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. All right? Uh, Athletes compete in games that have rules, right? That's the challenge in most games, is is trying to do whatever the task is according to the rules. If you can break the rules, it's going to be a lot easier. But if you do it according to the rules, it's going to require training and discipline. And uh, so just, for example, like if you're going to run a marathon, um, some of you may have done that. Uh, it requires a lot of training and preparation, right? I looked it up. I did run a marathon a few years ago, but uh, I looked it up to see what does the average runner take to just train. And it's usually they're starting at least 16 weeks in advance, and they're running many hours a week. And at the end of the 16-week period, they've ran dozens and dozens of hours in preparation for this 26-mile race, right? And they... Also, that's not even to mention the fact that they're changing their diet and trying to be strict and disciplined with all of that. It takes a decent amount of sacrifice of time and energy and even pleasures in order to do the, the, the uh, athletic event well, right? Paul often compares his life to an athletic event, and it takes discipline to run the race of life the way Paul ran that race. And let me just say, if the path you're choosing always seems to find just the easiest 
easiest route to avoid struggle, you may be going the wrong direction because often the path that God has for us requires us to endure that struggle. But all who press on with Christ in view can look forward to a priceless reward in eternity. Then the third example he gives is the farmer, and that's in verse 6. He says, it's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So farmers have one of the toughest jobs of all, don't they? they their hours often start long before sunset, or sun, sun rise, and they end after sunset. And uh, their work is usually dependent on weathers. They're not weather conditions. They're not fully in charge or in control of what's going to happen uh, with their crops. A drought or a flood could easily ruin weeks, maybe months of work. And so, good farmers pursue or, or uh, persist through these difficult times. And in doing so, uh, they deserve uh, the first fruits. They deserve the wage that comes from their hard work. All right. This should be an example to faithful servants of God. Jesus never promised that his service in his harvest field was going to be easy. Um, We need to take these examples and think about them. Um, But faithful servants can look forward to a reward on Judgment Day, right? So these are just three kind of mundane examples, normal types of careers, noble things to do in life. But they require sacrifice in order to demonstrate a real commitment to achieve the desired reward. Um, the, and there, the reward is kind of, a, I think, a big highlight of these three things, which I didn't catch until this, the, when I've recently been stu- studying this in preparation for the sermon. But I think pointing to the rewards in each case is a key to understanding his point here. You know, the, uh, the soldier, his reward is recognition. The athlete, his reward is, cr- is the crown. Uh, the farmer, his reward is the first crops or the wage for his, his work. Think about that as as we look at verse 7 here. Paul says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So if we take Paul's advice and just think about this, especially focusing on the reward in each case, you know, um, one thing becomes clear. If the people in these fields, the, the, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, if they're so committed that they're willing to sacrifice for what they're doing, Christians should be so much more committed. If you think about the reward we get for what we do or the reward that comes from what we do, it's it's an eternal thing versus these temporary things that are achieved in each of these situations. The reward for working hard to further the gospel, it's not recognition or a crown or a wage. The result is that people are forgiven for their sins and, and they get to have eternal life with Christ and, and God is glorified. So these things are so much bigger than any job than any task that men or women do here on this earth. And so our commitment to the gospel should be so much more intense than the commitment to a normal job like this. Well, even in spite of that, it does come with a great deal of sacrifice. And Paul knew what he was calling Timothy to was not going to be easy. Remember, he himself was in prison. He knew he was probably going to be executed. But sharing in the suffering for Christ has been the normal experience for believers through most of history. Modern Americans in our current condition where we live, this is pretty unique, having this uh, ideal of uh, freedom of religion and, and freedom from persecution to, to a large extent, it's pretty unique. And um, it hasn't been the norm for Christians throughout history. It's not the norm for Christians throughout the world, even today. And it may not continue to be the norm here. And so, brothers and sisters, I would just encourage you to brace yourself for this kind of suffering and to be willing to continue, continue and persist and follow God's calling on your life, even as you begin experiencing some kind of suffering for it. Well, we would all be wise to do that. This is the third responsibility of passing on the faith, um, and that is to be willing to suffer in the process of it. Then there's the fourth, which is to focus on the gospel of Christ. 
So this final responsibility Paul calls Timothy to is to maintain focus on the gospel. He says in verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Okay? So this is um, there in verses 8 and 9. And uh, this is the beginning of his final charge. The command is to remember, specifically to remember Jesus Christ. And this line of letter is kind of a transitional thought. He's coming out of the discussion on suffering and going into his final point that he's driving here in this fourth command, fourth chief command in the passage. And you might notice in your text that there's a paragraph break there going into verse 8. But coming out of the previous thought, Paul is urging Timothy, hey, um, remember Christ, he was the one who suffered more than anyone else. That should motivate us to endure any kind of suffering. Remembering that our Lord and Savior suffered is, is something that should just always be at the forefront of our mind as we do communion and various things. Um, that's the point of communion, right, is to remember Christ. And this is what Paul's calling Timothy here to do. Don't, don't forget that um, and let him be your motivation in life. But as he's moving in here uh, toward the end, you know, he's got this whole idea of passing on the faith in mind. And what he's saying is don't let, as he's saying, remember Christ, and he outlines some points of the gospel. He's saying don't let these things slip out of your focus. Maintain your focus on the gospel of Christ. If we're honest with ourselves, that's not easy. Um, It's very easy to lose focus. It's hard to stay on track. Uh, We can get caught up in various things like theological debates or um, programs in the church or things outside the church, helpful causes of some sort. And I'm not saying any of those things are necessarily bad in of themselves, uh, but if there's not a gospel focus in whatever it is you're doing, that's not the work that God has called us to chiefly as believers. All right, Many of those things can be good, but they're not the gospel. They're not the core of the work. So what is the message that Paul is urging Timothy to? Um, it's, he, he makes several comments here that are just worth noting about the gospel. He says uh, about Jesus that he was risen from the dead. Right? It's emphasizing Christ's victory and position um, over sin and uh, his, his ability to offer new life. He's suffered for our sins. He's died on the cross. He's risen again. And uh, now he stands ready to pay for the sins of all who trust him. Trusting him is how we begin this relationship that extends into eternity. Um, He also says Jesus is the offspring of David. That's just emphasizing the ancient roots of the gospel message. Like Paul, Timothy came from a Jewish background. Uh, The Jews knew that the Messiah would come through David's line. Um, Paul's reference to David is just a reminder that his message hasn't veered off track. It's it's in line with God's teaching from ancient times. Uh, then he says uh, in verse nine, "For which I am suffering," which is acknowledging that it's it's not easy, right? This is there's a cost involved with with passing on this this gospel and, and remaining focused on that mission and not letting myself get distracted uh, with other things. Bound with chains as a criminal. All right, that's the next line. And this continues to just further demonstrate that the gospel has a lot of opposition. All right, that was the that's what the reality Paul was facing. There was a lot of opposition to the gospel. All right, and then in the end of verse nine, he says, "But the word of God is not bound." And this is emphasizing the availability of the good news. And it must have been a joy for Paul to be able to say, "The word of God is not bound." This message that he's dedicated his life to passing on, it's not in that prison with him. It's out. And he's, I'm sure, thrilled to be able to say that. The truth of God is powerful, and Paul knew God would keep this message going. So 
In verse 10, Paul identifies his uh, main motivation for enduring all the suffering and why he wants to stay focused on this message. And, And so what he says in verse 10 is, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul sacrificed so that others could hear, so that he could be used of the Lord to deliver the good news to the elect. Friends, God is building a kingdom for his glory. And we, as the church, get to be part of that. We get to be part of that work. He's chosen us to be part of that. For too many of us, though, especially when life is going well and we're not dealing with too much suffering, it's really easy to let the gospel slip out of our focus. So I am challenge you, like Paul challenged Timothy, not to let your fickle heart be tempted to get off track, be tempted to prioritize other things that are, maybe they sound good, but they're not really gospel work. Let's not prioritize those things. Let's let eternity guide our path and always keep the gospel in focus um, throughout our lives. And so that's the fourth responsibility. Um, Passing on the faith requires us to keep focused on the gospel. That's the core. That's the main thing that we're supposed to do. So quickly, let's just reflect on what Paul's called Timothy to do and how that how that applies to us. So in verse one, he's calling him to find his grace or find his uh, strength in the grace of Christ. Right. So where do you find your strength? Are you tempted to depend on your own power? Or are you really allowing your weakness to to be on display and let Christ work through you? As you think about verse two, how are you involved in the process of entrusting others? With the truth, are you a leader who's intentionally investing others with the truth and then teaching them how to teach it to others? Maybe you're a faithful person uh, who's a believer and who wants to know, but you haven't really been trained in, at all. You ha- you're not really sure of the depths of the truth of the gospel, and you need to be trained. Maybe you need to approach a leader and ask them, "How do I, how do I learn more so I can also be involved in, in passing on the truth to others?" We should all be involved in at least one side of this, ideally both sides, having a mentor and someone who we're mentoring, a disciple. Um, I think that's a healthy model. As you think about verses 3 to 7 of what Paul has just said, think about in what ways are you sacrificing right now for the sake of the gospel? Is there something in your life that you're having to sacrifice in order to, to put yourself in a position where you can share the gospel? Is it possible that you've put too much time and effort into being comfortable? And does, does your comfort kind of, does it become an idol? Does it, does it occupy a higher place of priority than the gospel in your life? All right, and similarly, as, as we finish and just thinking about verses 8 to 10, just how does your life reflect that the gospel is your priority? Do you make decisions based on how those decisions are going to afford you a gospel opportunity, whether it's where you live or where you work or what activities you're involved in? Do you think about how that could give you a gospel opportunity. That's the kind of life Paul's urging Timothy to live. It's the kind of life the Lord wants us to live. So I hope we'll consider Paul's challenge here. And I hope all of us will be willing to endure the cost of passing on the faith. Let me pray for us. Father, you are so good to us. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for examples like Paul who gave his life. He poured out his life as an offering for you, as a sacrifice, as, a, as an act of worship every day, it seems. He wasn't perfect, but his testimony is so strong, and it's inspiring to us to consider how we live our lives. We're in a different place in a different time. We have different challenges that we face, and yet we have the same calling to pass on the faith. And we're thankful 
for how you have led Paul to lead Timothy, to lead others, to eventually get to the point where we have received the truth and we've heard the gospel. For those of us who are believers, we have received that treasure of truth and we are now meant to take that to others. So let us take this seriously. Let your word penetrate our hearts today. And I pray that you would give us wisdom as we go forward in this to do it well, to be obedient, and to honor you and glorify you in our lives as we pass on this this precious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we love you and pray this in his name. Amen. I ask you to